With each new wildfire season comes talk that the new season is worse than the last. With recent fires raging in the western U.S., the Australian bush, the taiga of Siberia, and the forest of France. Many point to climate change as a cause of extreme fires, and scientists are creating ever more sophisticated ways of examining that relationship. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is Reg- Regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Jessica McCarty. McCarty is an expert in remote sensing and geospatial analysis. McCarty is also the director of the Geospatial Analysis Center and Associate Professor of Geography at Miami University. She's also an associate program manager for NASA Wildland Fire Management for NASA Applied Science at Headquarters. In January of 2023, she'll become the new Branch Chief of Biospheric Sciences for NASA Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California, supervising more than 30 scientists and engineers, plus postdocs and student interns. She joins us today to talk about wildfires and climate change. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jessica. Well, thank you for having me. How did you get interested in wildfires? Uh, Well, let's see. It's actually because when I was a kid, I lived through a few wildfires. Oh. Uh, So I'm originally from Eastern Kentucky, and um, I always tell people that uh, I grew up on a farm on top of a mountain in the middle of a national forest, which is true. So we uh, are private inholders to the Daniel Boone National Forest. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, before I turned 20, I had lived through three wildfires within the Daniel Boone. Yes, and my family, being more than 250 years there, uh, knew how to protect the homestead, which was to keep defensible space, and then also be prepared to set fires if needed to. Um, and we had participated in prescribed burning um, to keep you know, things like ginseng production up, but also for pasture maintenance. So I just kind of grew up holistically around wildfires and prescribed burning and just thought they were parts of the landscape. Mm-hmm. And then when I was an undergrad, I had a a scholarship to go to the local university, Moorhead State University, and I was hired as a student intern and then for a short time a contractor for the U.S. Forest Service to work at the Daniel Boone because I had these geospatial and data skills, but then they needed someone to work on fire and they asked me to do it because I was a local (laughs) and I knew what, you know, I wasn't afraid to go to some of these places to collect data and I knew how to get there, but I could also do the technical analysis. So that's really how I got into fire. And then it was suggested to me by one of my professors that I should consider graduate school. And honestly, I'm sure other people have told you this, but uh, graduate school stipend seemed like a pretty good salary to me uh, coming from (laughs) Eastern Kentucky. So I was pretty happy to be accepted. Um, And I went to the University of Maryland and they actually... Uh, they paid for me to be a research assistant as a grad student working on a U.S. Forest Service fire grant. And it just kept going from there. So I became very interested in that. And then funnily enough, my older brother became my fieldwork assistant when I was a grad student because I had skipped a year of school as a child and was pretty young to be a graduate student and couldn't rent a car to do fieldwork. And so my older brother and I have driven, I can't tell you how many miles across the U.S. helping farmers burn or tracking down rangeland burning. Um, And most of the photos of me in the field, he has taken. And so, and even as we plan, my family plans this uh, 
move across the continent. Uh, my elder brother and I are planning to drive together uh, during this oh, move. So cool. we still keep this up, this like going across the country and oh, recording awesome. the landscape. Yeah. I'm from Scioto County in Southern Ohio. And so also from Appalachia, grew up similarly like on this old farm, not quite on a mountain, but on a very high hill. And we dealt with fires constantly. I sure. remember like running buckets back and forth at times. And so it just, it never struck me as something that people would research. Obviously, you have to, but it's sort of listening to your story. It's just sort of interesting to see kind of where you got, how yeah. you got to where you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I do think in the eastern U.S. and the southern U.S., um, our fire return intervals, what we call the time period by which wildfires take a break, pause, and come back on the landscape, is much longer than the western U.S. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes communities don't have good memories because mm-hmm. they're they're new communities that have developed or they've moved into these areas or they've made them into tourist sites and then fire becomes a nuisance and not a part of the landscape. And it just so happens that in the southern Appalachians, the human population is much more stable in a way, you know, has been there a longer time and hasn't changed as much and has, I think, more, it's kind of uh, woven into the cultural landscape there that fire is a risk, you have to live with fire, the wildfire season will come. Just as like the spring tides, the flooding season will come mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Now I have to. This is great. This is really interesting. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what kind of data do you do you collect to try to understand kind of wildfire seasons or these intervals or? And then the second part of a question naturally would be, what kind of analyses do you do, would you follow up with such data? Sure. So you can collect everything from. Um, Soil samples, sediment cores in lakes and rivers, and dendrochronology, so tree rings, to look at historical fire return intervals. And that's normally how that's done mm. um, in North America. Tree rings are, you know, our, our old trees are basically our, our memories. They're our, oh, you know, cool. hard drives, you know, of the landscape. Um, and so dendrochronologists are often working in teams to go to landscapes where we we know are either there aren't that many old growth or virgin landscapes left in the eastern U.S., but even in the western U.S., but going to the ones where we know how old the trees are, we know how, how old the landscape is, and then very carefully picking, selecting the ones that are likely to die anyway or are dying, and then cutting them down to do tree ring analysis. Um, and it is counting. You know, it's counting individual rings. It's putting, you know, th- things through uh, spectrometry in, in labs. It is also things like going and asking the communities who live there, when was the first fire that you remember? And asking them for the year Mm. and the month. It's going back and doing media searches. So um, I knew someone in grad school who compared the tree ring analysis to microfiche in the uh, National Archives. So to see if like local media had reported on fires in that region. And when local media was stronger, yes, they did. And so, yeah. and that's one of the like, you know, negative consequences of local media sources not being as strong as they used to be is sometimes they're not reported unless they're seen as like just, you know, completely this huge um, emergency or completely out of the norm when in fact, you know, most of North America is fire adapted and, and we would expect fire at some point. In, in, a, in a human lifetime, you would expect to see fire once in almost every landscape. Uh, yeah, and I don't think people know that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so uh, we live on a fire planet just as much as we live on a water planet. So it's better to live and thrive with the fire than it is to fear it. 
You know, one one thing that is, as you're describing this, I and you've done a lot of work in the Arctic. You know, you talked about your where you grew up. There, you know, I'm thinking about the Amazon, and I'm thinking about all these communities where you have a tremendous number of stakeholders. You know, whether it's a, a number of states or whether it's a number of countries. Uh, often with things like the the indigenous peoples that are mm-hmm. there that all are are here. So how 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 does the the data and the analysis that you're doing in terms of of kind of understanding fire risk and impact, how does that play out in terms of thinking about policy with this disparate collection of stakeholders? Yeah, well, there are similarities across landscapes. Let's start with the Arctic. So I am a U.S. representative to one of the uh, Arctic Council's working groups. Right now it's on pause, but we did before uh, that pause occurred in this year due to the war in Ukraine release a study where we looked at a review of all Arctic fires and boreal fire regimes that had been uh, published in English, uh, Russian, Finnish, Norwegian, Swedish, and French, because we had Canadian colleagues working with us for the past, basically since the middle of the 20th century forward. So this is more than 300 peer-reviewed papers in order to do this review, in order to think about the future of fire. Um, And what we decided to do was that we would only look at Western science for this. So we would look at peer-reviewed scientific data, data analyses, manuscripts, data sets, and then produce then an idea of what the data is showing us, what science is showing us. And then in tandem, another Arctic Council working group is using co-production with indigenous knowledge to, for them to understand and tell the story and produce, you know, their own uh, knowledge and science of what the fire regimes look like now, how they're changing, and what they think the future will look like. And then what we tried to do, and I think we did very successfully, and I have to say much of that credit goes to my colleagues at the Gwich'in Council International, which is a, a First Nations and Native American international council split between Northwest Territories and Alaska. And they held a sharing circle uh, across the Panarctic and Panboreal where we could compare these things. So what is the science, the Western science telling us, and what is the indigenous knowledge telling us? And it was invitation only, but we recorded it on Zoom. I was, it was my privilege here at Miami to host it for them. Um, and then we wrote up a report. And we, what we learned was that it did not matter uh, you know, where the indigenous community was coming from in the boreal or Arctic, but they were telling us this is what they're seeing has changed, and then what their elders are telling them used to happen and had changed, and it very much aligns with tree rings, sediment cores, satellite data observations, and what our models are predicting. But of course, we can't say what the fire risk is going to do to community vulnerability at the fine scale right at the neighborhood scale, at the village scale. And so that is where sometimes, you know, our satellite data and our geospatial analysis has to take just a back seat so that we can learn from local populations and then figure out how we can help them or how we can provide the data and analysis for them to help themselves, right, for them to do the, the work. So what would you, in a situation like this, be looking for if you were using a geospatial approach? Like if you've had the, you have this information and you're looking for just a, an ability to kind of triangulate what you're finding in all these spaces, what might geospatial look like in relation to this? Sure. So one of the things we could do is think about wild food sources. And oftentimes Mm. when we think about fire risks, we're only thinking about risk to infrastructure, buildings, um, and energy, right, basically. But 
in the Arctic and the Boreal, many people are reliant on wild food, right? mm-hmm. just as they are throughout, you know, many rural parts of the world. And one of the things that, that um, our, you know, our indigenous permanent participants of the Arctic Council have been very good at teaching us is that if you do small, low intensity fires, prescribed burning or cultural burning in the spring, that helps the grass grow and it will attract caribou and moose. And that usually means that they have more calves. But if you wait until the summer and you get these huge intense fires and you didn't get rid of those fuels earlier on, then often that will stress out the caribou and the moose. They'll avoid those areas and they won't have as many calves. So now you don't know where to go to hunt and you also are you know, hurting their generational productivity. In geospatial, what we could do is actually map, in using satellite imagery as well, map the intensity of fire over many, many decades down to almost um, a 30-meter resolution. And for the listener, what that means is a 30-meter pixel is the size of a professional baseball diamond. So, you know, it's, it does, it's not small, but it's small enough at a, over a large right area because the boreal arctic is so big um uh, going back basically to the early 1980s and we can say what the fire intensity was when it happened and then what has happened to the vegetation since then and then we can link that with biodiversity data you're listening to stats and stories and today we're talking to miami university's jessica mccarthy about studying wildfires so You've talked about sort of this work in the Arctic, and John mentioned Amazon. I wonder, given sort of the various regions you've looked at, and you've obviously studied, thought about fire in relation to your home, are there are there similarities across geographic spaces and what people are experiencing, even even though there are these diverse places? Yes, but there is a, one big difference that I think the global community needs to know about rainforests, which is that rainforests are not fire adapted. So unlike boreal and arctic systems, temperate and subtropical systems that we have here in North America, when you introduce fire to a rainforest, you don't reduce the risk of fire coming back. In fact, what you do is dry out the forest and increase the risk of fire coming back. So in Brazil and in the legal Amazon, what we're seeing is this encroachment, right, of conversion of, of natural landscapes into agriculture or into mining or to timber. When they set a fire, they're creating a space that will burn again and again and again and just keep expanding. So they're, in, they're increasing risks. They're not decreasing it as wow. opposed to what's happening in these other contexts. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think that's not necessarily well understood. There's so many brilliant South American scientists and then, of course, colleagues that I know who are funded by NASA who work on this. And they try to get this message out because I, I think it's lost on a lot of <laughs> a lot of the global community, especially here in the in the states where we think like an extreme fire happens in California and they woof, they got, a, you know, a couple decades to figure it out after that fire. Right. That's actually not the case in the Amazon. Um, probably what what burned last year will burn again the next year and then again the next year. And we'll just keep expanding and drying out the fuels. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, my dad loves Western, so I'm thinking it's almost like that old Ponderosa TV show where the, the screen lights on fire. Like, that's basically what the Amazon forest is doing. You set a fire in the middle, and it'll just keep spreading until it consumes the whole thing. 
And that's what's happening on the edges of the rainforest. And the same is true across other rainforest ecosystems. We see this in Indonesia. We see it in Central uh, Africa um, and could be true even in temperate rainforest systems. So currently those are managed pretty well and they don't have climate impacts like we see in the Mm -hmm. tropics. Yeah. No. First, I'm thinking about how many people are going to love that image of the Ponderosa. <laughs> <laughs> if they yeah, know so, it, I feel like so I just I, dated you know, myself. I, I, yeah. I, and I'm going, oh, I've never seen that. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly what you were yeah. saying. I only know that's because my father. Someone told me, a friend, a friend of mine, yeah, yes. a friend of mine's yeah. dad told me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> that's a great image. I, you know, so I, that's, that's a really fascinating sto- question about, you know, how do you, how do you convince kind of the, you know, countries that are, doing this as part of development. Yeah, economic development. It's part of economic development saying, okay, here's you know, here's the long-term consequence of this action that you think is well, maybe you think it's benign and but maybe you don't, but but you know that you 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 do this with an eye towards this development but with the possibility that it's going to devastate development or it might devastate kind of this resource that you might count on you know whether it's you know kind of this amazon is this incredible resource for the world mm, yeah or, i mean all rainforests are all right? rainforests yeah. yeah um but that's certainly kind of the poster child the, for for, kind right. of this, for rainforests right so i i think it's that um and I know because uh, the, what the listeners don't know is that John and I actually know each other in real life, in <laughs> IRL. But we've talked about this. Um, people don't respond to data, right? They do love pretty maps. Oh, and they love satellite imagery. And I can tell you that when I was in grad school, oh, I had a hell of a time com- telling people what I did for a living. They just couldn't, like, picture it. But oh, now testify. they know. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but now they know. They're like, oh, I know that. I've seen that, you know, on social media. I've seen all, yeah. Um, okay, great. So um, because people don't respond to data, we we need to be able to tell them a story, which I guess was why you have stats and stories, right? And the story is really about at the base root of economics and ecology is the same word and Greek, which mean, is oikos, which means home, right? And so just like economics is, is based off of the eco, ecology is based off the eco. And if you destroy the ecology, you will destroy your economics. Of course, it's hard to convince people who don't have enough money to buy food. So we need to be thinking more about how to not just help each other, but to make sure we're providing people with support to help themselves and alternatives to help themselves um, and listening to those communities when they tell us what they want and not just telling them what they want. <laughs> you know, I have a small child and it's like I didn't realize the teenage years started so soon. <laughs> yeah, <welcome. laughs> yes, I thought I thought I could at least get to middle school, but I was wrong. Um, <laughs> But I think we should, in the same way that, you know, children don't like being told what to do unless you can give them a good reason, right? And I, and I think it's the same, same situation here. And it is hard. I, I do think, and this is something that is out, kind of outside the scope of, of data, but when we talk to, like when at the intersection of science and policy, so when scientists have to talk to decision makers, policy makers, even politicians, we need to be able to be humble enough to know our own history. And it's real hard <laughs> to tell the people who live in the legal Amazon that they shouldn't be uh, cutting down their forests when most of the developed world has already done that. 
it's just that we did it 200 years ago and now our forests have you know rebounded mm-hmm. to the most part so we need I, just, I think we need to make peace with our own stories and our own data and 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 then hopefully come together in you know potentially in these kind of co-production ways like what knowledge can we derive brazil needs economic development great how can we do that but no more rainforest is disturbed right yeah so I started this podcast with this sort of hinting at this rhetoric that you hear a lot, like climate change is making wildfires worse. And so I'm going to ask you, sort of given the work you've done, because we are getting towards the end of time, and I have to ask this question, like, are, is is climate change making wildfires worse? And how do we know one way or the other? So climate change is making wildfires worse. Climate change is making the conditions for fires to start worse as well. So basically what's happening is our atmosphere in most places is dry is getting drier and hotter, but particularly at the surface. And any anybody who has ever mowed a lawn knows that you can't mow a lawn when it's too wet, right? You have to wait till it dries. But if it gets too dry, you might set a fire. Right? So it's the same thing on a large scale with our forests and grasslands. Um, and honestly, any human-dominated system as well. Climate change is taking moisture out of the air, it is drying the landscape, and it's increasing heat, which means any ignition source will cause a fire. And that's, that's really how climate change is increasing the risk. There's other secondary components like climate change drives, infestation of different types of beetles and moss that will also kill forests. We know that the emerald ash borer came through most of North, now most of Eastern North America. Like the Northern part of Quebec is dealing with the emerald ash borer now because climate change has increased the basically domain in which it can live. The other situation is that climate change is also increasing the heat in the part of the atmosphere where lightning is generated. And as we get more lightning strikes, we just have more possibilities for ignition. But humans are still the main ignition source of fires, which means we can reduce fire risk and fire ignitions in general. That there are still solutions that are human-centric, even as climate change is making the overall conditions worse. And I, I sometimes find that, especially when talking with college students and graduate students, that they want me to give them hope. And, like, again, John knows me in real life. Like, I am not the person to turn to for hope. But I will. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Come on. But, but I will tell you um, how, to solve, how to solve a problem. And so I just always tell them that we know that there are solutions. Just work the problem. Right. And I always think of it as like I have several friends who are sober and they talk about um, how they they work the steps, you know, in order to maintain sobriety. And I think like for climate change, we could maybe learn from that community. Like basically, we're just going to have to work the steps. (laughs) We need to reduce fire risk. We need to make our communities more fire resilient. And we need to do climate action so that we stop the heating of the atmosphere. It's you know, it's and we do all these steps at the same time. And every day we wake up and we do the same steps again and again, and and eventually things will improve. But you never really get to stop doing those things. You just kind of have to keep doing it. I mean, I make coffee every morning, right? I'm going to make coffee every morning till I die. <laughs> so we can all um, also just every day work a little on climate and 
and that's it and still live our lives and have a big things to look forward to so you know i i i think a lot about risk assessment risk estimation in other contexts mm-hmm. and you know fire risk assessment I, I first encountered this decades ago when someone was and i was really intrigued that that there were people that were working on this kind of problem and and you're describing kind of managing thinking about steps towards managing this risk. And you've, you've mentioned a couple of things. And I, and I find thinking, as, as, as we just saw the announcement that what world population had 8 billion mm-hmm. in recent weeks, so we have more and more pressure on, on this natural resource, on, on land use in particular, and then it, it translates. So when, when you think about the various steps that you've described, you know, do, you, do you have kind of any thoughts about uh, how to remove some of the barriers for implementing some of these steps? I mean, you've, you've kind of, I, I, I'm taking away in part kind of the, we need to be telling this story of the importance of, you know, managing this, mm-hmm. the, the risk in our communities, this fire risk in particular, and the fact that it's a consequence of some other things that we need to be addressing. Mm-hmm. But, but how, do, you know, can you help us tell this story better? Can you help us, help us think about how do we, we convince people to move forward on, on removing some of the barriers towards implementation? Yes, I, and I, I guess at this moment I have to say, right now I am not a civil servant. I do not speak for NASA or the federal government, though I will be transitioning to that position soon. And the reason I bring that up is one of the things I think is really important is transparent and open science Mm -hmm. in order to help people make these risk assessments. We live in a time of where people are kind of allergic to nuance. (laughs) And so um, in order for there to be any trust and the risk analyses that that we're trying to show them, we need to be able to also show that all the data is open and transparent. So they themselves can also do the analysis, and that means making the tools open and transparent. It means making the training open and transparent. And that's really what I think NASA and other federal agencies in the U.S. are doing and doing more of, particularly Mm. around wildfire. And I know from professional and personal experience that uh, many of our agencies that are kind of tasked with the operational component of wildland firefighting do not always have the most trusted reputations by the local communities, particularly in the Western U.S. Um, But I do know that when NASA or NOAA or USGS is willing to work with the local population, to share the data, to very quickly make it open, that that tends to lower the temperature locally Mm. (laughs) so that Mm. the wildland firefighters can do their work, incident command can do their work, um, and the community knows that they still trust these these science and operational agencies who are working um, on wildfire that who aren't doing the wildland firefighting and that's we want to keep that trust so how are we going to communicate risk assessment better how are we going to do better risk assessment is it's a hard work around everything right now which is building and maintaining trust and i do think in the geospatial sector that means everything every data we collect (laughs) all the satellite imagery, all the software, all the analysis, it has to be open and transparent to the public so they know how we got to the conclusion we got to. And then, then the man, it seems like to, the complement to that is that the, all the management options that are being considered along with the support for them should be open and available for, right. for assessment and evaluation. That's right. Yeah. And real time, is that going to happen? No. no. <laughs> but after the fact, yes. 
so that the next time this occurs, the public knows these are the management solutions. These are the choices. This isn't a roll of the die here. <laughs> so, so they understand what, why that choice was made and they can better advocate for different choices or for the choices they want. And it's, it's just kind of all based on the trust in the information stream. Yeah, I, I know that's not, I do not have a PhD in communications. I actually have a PhD in, geogra- in geographical sciences and geography. So uh, like I may not be the person to work on this, but I'm happy to work with a communication expert. I think you did a great job. Okay. That was stellar. All right. Well, that's all the time we actually have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been great. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.